Welcome to the fifth episode of the Fordham IPLJ podcast with your online editor, Anthony Zangrillo. I'm here today with associate editor, uh, Vince Barbuto. Happy to be here. We're going to be talking about a really interesting topic, fan films. So um, fan fiction has been around for a really long time and intersects uh, with IP in a number of ways, but seems like the biggest issue underlying most of what we're going to be talking about today is, uh, you know, whether or not fan fiction and fan films in particular uh, constitute fair use of the underlying copyrighted works. Uh, so, so basically just reviewing, what is the usual test for fair use? So courts tend to consider uh, four factors when they're determining whether or not um, a work uh, is fair use. Uh, first, they look at the purpose and character of the use, including whether uh, the use is of a commercial nature or uh, if it's for nonprofit or educational purposes. Um, second is the nature of the copyrighted work that uh, is being used or derived. Uh, third is the amount and sustainability of the portion used in relation to the copyrighted work as a whole. And fourth and finally is the effect of the use upon the potential market for the value of the copyrighted work. So do you find like a problem with some of these, like let's say the purpose and character of the use? Can't you say almost any use could be commercial in the end, especially in this realm? Yeah, I mean when we're talking about fan films on the internet, I think that um, these factors were designed without considering the potential for, I mean there's a potential commercial uh, ability for any any film that's you know put on YouTube via ad revenue or any number of ways, so the environment we have today where fan fiction is being produced on the internet, um, you know, every fan is essentially a competitor of the copyright owner in a way, and that creates a problem because you want to encourage fans to interact with the materials that they love, but at the same time, copyright owners have to enforce and protect their rights. I mean, I always think of Little Tony. You know, Little Tony, he's there, maybe he's five, something like that. His mom, maybe he doesn't want to take him to like the new Star Wars film, whatever it is. You just put some fan film out there. Maybe somebody's using Kylo Ren in a different way. And he just tells little Tony, hey, that's the new movie. Yeah, this is what Lucasfilm made, yeah. <laughs> you know, according to Mom. Um, what are you going to do for all the little Tonys out there? It's, it's definitely a problem. Um, it's a problem for, you know, whoever made that film because they probably, they might not even want to derive any sort of commercial benefit from it. They just want to, you know, declare their fandom of something like Star Wars. But... Um, if they're cutting into Lucasfilm or Disney's bottom line, or potentially, uh, you know, diluting the nature of the characters. I mean, Disney's a family company. Uh, say that the film they put out is a really violent one. I think we're going to be talking a little bit about, you know, the different interpretation of Power Rangers in a bit. Um, it causes a problem for the company that owns these properties. Uh, you know, they have a brand to protect. So it's a tough spot for sure. So... Um, you know, moving from the example of Star Wars onto another popular uh, franchise that has a very strong fan fiction following, um, and that's been in the news recently, Star Trek. Um, Nerds. <laughs> yeah, Trekkies will definitely identify with this one. Uh, has has sort of brought fan films uh, to the forefront um, with a new uh, crowdfunded film called Axanar uh, that raised. Why? God bless you. <laughs> What the, what the 
heck is that? Uh, it's a mild blood disorder that... No. Is that like a new legal principle or something like that? <laughs> it may end up being one after this case. Um, so it actually re- refers to, I think, so, like a very small snippet of uh, an episode of the Star Trek series from the 60s, like a, uh, a background storyline that wasn't even explored, but some heavy fans... Um, took that piece and wanted to build an entire, you know, feature-length film off of it. It wasn't really anything that was being used that we know of uh, was being used by CBS or Paramount, the owners of Star Trek. Um, you know, they wrote a script and they crowdfunded over a million dollars, which is a huge number uh, for you know any crowdfunded film, but particularly fan films are you know we see typically running under you know the, in the tens of thousands or less. So over a million is a big deal. Uh, and, and they didn't put anything of their own in it. They crowdfunded all of that. Yeah, it was crowdfunded, I think, on Indiegogo. Okay. Um, That's another... I hate that stuff. And but. not Well, not only did they do that, but they were able to get sort of uh, tacit endorsements from f- previous Star Trek cast members who I think some even committed to participate. I'm pretty... Uh, I'm not sure about Maybe this, like but... Maybe like a cameo or something. Yeah, you like get like that. George Takei, the original Sulu, and um, some others in there... Um, and it definitely raises the attention of, you know, the owners of the property. This is not your standard fan film. Um, they were building, you know, a feature quality set. Um, not that far, actually, from where Star Trek Beyond was probably being filmed at the same time. Oh, that's true. So, yeah, they, you know, they had another movie coming out. Uh, came out this past July. And uh, it, this year is also the 50th anniversary of the whole franchise. So they had a lot of reasons to be protective over the brand. Um the producers of Axanar claimed that they requested and received permission from Paramount to actually go through with this. Um, Paramount's denied that, uh, and the case is still pending. Um, obviously, they sued for copyright infringement. Um, and on the one side, you have these fans who claim, you know, there's a growing culture of fan fiction that's been sort of accepted or even encouraged by the Star Trek owners in the past. There are plenty of fan films out there uh, that the Star Trek producers didn't sue over. Um, But there's also legal precedent saying, specifically with respect to Star Trek, actually, there's a Second Circuit case on a book saying that just because they didn't sue in the past doesn't mean they don't have the right to sue for a different project in the the future. Um, Yeah, and I totally agree with that, that I don't think they should... They weren't really sitting on their rights if they were allowing some of this fan... these fan films to come out. I can understand the argument that now, let's say, an artist doesn't know if they can actually use it or not, when you're looking at the law, they are definitely not falling under fair use and infringing the copyright, in my opinion. It seems that way. Um, And even in the case, it seemed like at least what the producer's lawyer ended up sort of publicly stating their argument was going to be was more along the lines of uh, potential First Amendment and freedom of expression protections uh, for the fans, and a lot of fan filmmakers uh, sort of try to use that protection. But in a lot of cases, it it may not get around the fact that you know you're using, um, you're creating a very clear derivative work of a protected copyrightable uh, property. So, see, I could play devil's advocate. I never thought of this before, but technically, they're a copyright troll in a weird way. Yeah, because. As you know, with patent trolls, is when you basically hoard these licenses and you're just sitting on them and then just want the licensing fees. 
technically, that's what some of these properties end up doing in no copyright realm. Mm-hmm. That they have these characters and this like very small, minute issue that all of a sudden is it going to be expanded upon? Well, maybe that's not in their current plans right now. But fans that really like these small elements want to expand it. Right. Should they have a constitutional right? I don't think so because it's basically property. That's what you're not, I think not you, but I mean like people are not really seeing intellectual property as a natural property right. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem sometimes that I'm coming across with the, the fandom it's even more problematic, and I mean, we started off talking about how things are different in today's market with the internet. Not only are they different because there's a potential commercial value in every fan film, but they're also different because the idea of the troll sort of sitting on the license but not doing anything with it uh, diminishes when you think about how many potential ways these properties can be exploited by their owners today. Um, and in ways that they haven't even thought of yet, but that doesn't mean that they're not valuable. So they're not really just sitting on the license. You know, there may be a, a, a plan five years down the line to create a whole new universe based off some obscure character. Or even, you know, you have this universe concept in films today. Every character is its own potential franchise or spinoff. I guess so that's true. they want to sit on these licenses because they they know that somewhere down the line they're going to sell it to Netflix for a miniseries or they're going to make an online you know miniseries. Even Star Trek is another example. They have a new CBS specific streaming service that's you know a new Star Trek series. Mm-hmm. We don't know if that was in the works before Axanar. It probably was. But by the way, how sad can you get? You have a new series coming out, but you miss such an anniversary. Yeah, you get one year <laughs> off. Are you kidding me? Not that I care. I'm a Star Wars guy. I don't. I don't care about you Trekkies. But I feel bad for you. <laughs> and the, to add insult to injury, uh, the you know the movie that they did release in the 50th anniversary Beyond did not do well at the box office. So um, so apparently it was profitable. Mm-hmm. But you're right. It wasn't like this new Star Trek franchise has had a hard time hitting. I mean. It's never going to be anywhere close to, you know, Force Awakens numbers, of course. Yeah, of course, yeah. But I think that they had higher hopes than, than what they're hitting. I mean, I think definitely that's the case. And um, it was something when you think of with, uh, I thought the original reboot, I don't know what you call this. What was that, Star Trek? Yeah. The J.J. The, the, Abrams, the first Star Abrams Trek. one. he's still a producer on them. I thought it was very similar to Star Wars, so I actually liked it, and I usually don't like, mm-hmm. you know, the Star Trek films. I think both of those did fine. I know this third one, I was shocked. Apparently, it is profitable. Technically, it, I think it's the best reviewed. Yeah, it did. It, it was very well reviewed, um, and hopefully, it you know makes them even more on the home release market um, because there's definitely quality there there in the storytelling. I don't know how but, much you make nowadays on that? Yeah, uh, but. That's yet again another reason, though, why owners are going to be very sensitive to anything cutting into their market share. Um, so, you know, the prospect of a, a fan film that's raising a million dollars, even if it isn't charging people to watch the film, uh, sort of problematizes this idea of um, under fair use it being non commercial and, and should be allowed just by virtue of that. Um, so. Uh, not only did, did the producers respond with a lawsuit, but we also have. Uh, these new guidelines uh, for avoiding objections that CBS and Paramount put out sort of to the whole Star Trek fan community. And that may influence other franchises and how they handle, um, you know, future fan films, uh, especially 
you know, circling back to Disney, we have certainly a large number of Star Wars uh, fan films and Marvel fan films uh, on the horizon and ones that have already come out. So these guidelines may influence how the rest of the market reacts, and they're pretty restrictive. Um, you know, fan productions for Star Trek uh, have to be less than 15 minutes for one story, or if it's going to be a two-segment story, less than 30 minutes. Uh, you can't raise more than $50,000. Um, so it seems like they're fine with amateur work. Yeah. That you're kind of expressing your creativity and artistic endeavors. Mm -hmm. And you could be possibly telling a story that's non-canon. Yeah. And they're totally okay with that. But as soon as it becomes a possible competition to them, then they want to squash it. Yeah. I mean, I'm not... I don't know where I fall on this because... In terms of just getting more content out there, I think it's wrong. Because now you're limiting how like good the product can be. Mm -hmm. So yeah, another interesting example would be this Darth Maul fan film that was made. Uh, I mean, I think it was January 2016. Now, very interesting. I must be a psycho. I mean, psychic. Whatever it is. <laughs> but Maybe both. We were in this class together. We were, yeah. Property with uh, Irina Monta, very good professor. Great. But we had a policy question on basically this topic with fan films. Should it be allowed? Should you get a copyright infringement? I mean, should you be able to get a copyright injunction against someone who does a fan film? And I argued that you should. I was going full big law. You know, I wanted to be like totally representing the studios, not the artist. And I, I used an example in my essay about Darth Maul you know, fan fiction. That what if somebody decided to make a Darth Maul fan film literally the week before Force Awakens comes out because our final was the day before day Force before Awakens. Opening, yeah. That was very difficult for me to handle. But I got through it. Yeah. Definitely a hard time to study. Yes, it was. But all of a sudden in January, they released on YouTube this really impressive Darth Maul fan film. And it had all of the different stunts, all different choreography. I think it was definitely of a production budget. I could say it could have been. What, what did you say? It was 50000 Is what it would have to be under for Somewhere Star Trek? That, yeah, that would be within the Star Trek guidelines. Um, I think – so you saw that film. Do you think it was I did. that? Uh, it could be. I mean the effects looked pretty high quality to me. Um, it was shot on location somewhere and mm -hmm. a couple different – You know, they had like a wood setting and then also a desert, right? I believe, was it supposed to be Felucia? I'm going full nerd here. Uh, full nerd zone now. I'm <laughs> on my PLJ podcast. Because I, I know it was jungles. That's why I was thinking yeah. Felucia. So, <laughs> I mean, it. either way, they had they definitely had some dollars behind it. Yes. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, I mean, the lightsaber choreography, as you said, was very well done. Um, and to make that look decent does take a, a fair effects budget. So, uh I'm not sure what the price was on it, but it very well could have been over what you know the uh, the Star Trek guidelines would allow. Uh, I'm also not sure if it was submitted. You know, we we know that Lucasfilm and Disney actually encourage fan films by holding a yearly fan film contest through Star Wars Celebration. Uh, they have some slightly less restrictive guidelines than uh, what we see with with the Star Trek guidelines, um, and if it was there, I feel like it would have won, so maybe it wasn't submitted. But that that's just to say that Lucasfilm seems to be encouraging this uh, within certain limitations. 
Now, do you think that was just because they felt like there was no way to stop it, or they do actually want fans to express themselves this way? Because this was under the Lucas era, right? Before Disney? No, this was, um, I mean, if it was 2016, it was after. No, I'm saying um, the contest. Like, how old Oh, no, this, the, this is a current... Um, this is new? Yeah. Uh, and I, but I think it's been running since pre-Disney purchase. The, rule, the guidelines have changed um, since, you know, I think pre-2007, you weren't allowed to make what they called an in-canon fan film. So I oh, guess, okay. you know, George Lucas or whoever was in charge of this at Lucasfilm before Disney bought it wasn't for that. But since that time... Uh, in canon films have been allowed, which I would assume would include something like the use of a character like Darth Maul. In canon films, um, they're, but they're counting it. Well, I guess it's in canon, but it's not actually canon. Right. Ugh. <laughs> it is confusing. Um, but so you know they've they've done things that you know there's a lower time limit, ten minutes, um, and you know entries can't contain nudity, excessive swearing, explicit sexual themes, things. Things like that. Uh, but at the same time, the fact that they are publicizing and, in fact, rewarding these films through a contest seems like it might be a more balanced approach than saying, you know, a la Star Trek, you have these restrictive guidelines, but if you follow them, we just won't do anything. Lucasfilm seems to be saying, we have some guidelines in place, and if you do them, we might actually reward you, uh, which is an interesting approach. Now, here's where it becomes problematic, though. You have these rules and these guidelines within the contest. Mm -hmm. Is that the same as Star Trek inviting people to make the fan films? Can you now make a fan film that's not intended for the contest whatsoever, as this person may have done? But if he stays within the guidelines, I guess there's an implicit approval. Possibly, and um, I think that might be something that you look at more from a market response than a legal one. So, yes. you know, these are business decisions uh, for for CBS and Paramount and for Lucasfilm and Disney in the sense that on a case-by-case basis, they may look and say, hey, this fan film actually adds value to our brand. It's free marketing. Um, you know, we, we don't have to pay as much in the ad budget for our next film if this one, uh, if this fan film actually gets people in seats in the theater for our next film. Whereas... You know, another one that is more explicit or violent, dilutes the brand, something like the Power Rangers film uh, that we're going to be talking about later. There, the business decision intersects with the legal decision, and then you want to use copyright to protect the value of your brand. So it's a tough question. So you could say, and we'll transition into it now, with that Power Rangers film, that you think one of the main barriers to making your fan film is similar to these rules that if you're starting to use sex or adult themes is when they're going to come in really almost more of a trademark analysis of they're protecting the brand possibly yeah behind the trademark yeah. behind the copyright particularly when you have a family-friendly brand like anything disney owns mm-hmm. or um uh or power rangers you know that's Marketed at least here, maybe not so much in Japan, but here is very much. Uh, is it marketed towards adults over there? I think I. My understanding is that the shows have slightly more sophisticated plots in Japan than they you do here. Just fan as a kid? Um, not a huge one. Oh, um, I, was, I was huge, man. Tommy. Oh my god. <laughs> I, I think I met Jason David Frank at one of the comic cons. I didn't pay. It was a panel. I don't pay for celebrities, but. <laughs> 
Yo, that dragon flew. I mean, I'm probably more of a white Power Ranger fan in the end. Green Power Ranger's awesome. But overall, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, yeah, I'm down with that. The other ones I'm not really sure of. That's out of my scope of Yeah, expertise. it seems like there's a new Power Rangers for every generation. Um, <laughs> every year. Qu- questionable to think whether this fan film is going to become, you know, the Power Rangers film of the current generation. It seemed to pick up a lot of, a lot of steam and a lot of hype. Uh, even though it's you know hyper violent and a, a, definitely a departure from what you would normally think of as Power Rangers. Fan film is what everyone always wanted because it was always violent Power Rangers. So you just added you added blood into it, you decapitation, added consequences. Yeah, you yeah. Added, added actual consequences. Because I would I would say in the old Power Rangers they destroyed the command base or something like people got beat up, people got killed and stuff like that. Well, did people get killed. Maybe not. Maybe off screen. Maybe, maybe they didn't get killed. <laughs> but like that that fan film was awesome. Now, is it disparaging the brand? Yes, in terms of what they want, sure. Because at the end of the day, this was a show unlike any other that was just a commercial. Mm-hmm. Literally just a commercial. When if you would have asked me as a kid, did I realize I was watching the same exact scene in a loop every single episode? Probably not. But yes, that's what they did. Half of the show was just a loop of recycled materials. Just the same thing, yeah. Especially the Zords. Anytime the Zords would come out, which by the way, if you have an awesome scene and you just want to repeat it 20 times, I'm not going to argue it. No, why not? They're coming out of the ground, these dinosaurs. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> but um, that that was the whole, that that fan film is just fantastic. But there was a whole problem when it first came out. Saban was not having any of it at no. all. And I even think to this day, it's still not on YouTube. It's available. I think Venmo, uh, no, what's it called? Vimeo. Vimeo, yeah. But I think uh, YouTube, I have to assume, received a DMCA takedown and, mm-hmm. and complied with it. You know. I think about it immediately, yeah. from what I remember. Now, talking about awful Power Rangers fan films. Did you see the new trailer that came out? I <laughs> mean, oh, the official, yeah. The Lionsgate, I thought it was a fan. I thought Studio. it was like a fan account. No. Uh, and oddly enough, I would say, you know, speaking of potential infringements, that trailer makes it seem like the movie is a ripoff of, uh, have you seen Chronicle? Yes, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> which, I mean, maybe the elements of Chronicle that they're using are not, you know, uh, specific enough or unique enough to really say that they're they're – you know, infringing on Max Sense Landis. Yeah, yeah, you're looking at Santa Fair probably. But at the same time, it's funny to see a company jump down the throats of fans for infringing on their copyright at the same time that they're producing a script that looks pretty similar to, you know, previously uh, produced works. Now, who wrote Chronicle? Uh, Max Landis. Max Landis, right. Apparently, he was one of the original writers on this Power Rangers script. Oh, that's right. And I he forgot was about on that. Twitter, he's not happy about it. But like he's saying, why did you even get rid of me if you ended up just using remaking a movie that I made? Yeah. Now, my argument is this: if suppose it's a teaser trailer, sure, so I'll I'll be like very lenient with mm-hmm. my analysis of it. I'm just gonna say this: if we don't really see the suits until the final third, where Lionsgate released Gods of Egypt. So I'm sure they don't have all this money to throw at this movie, but if we really don't see that, this is not going to be a good film. This is—I don't think Power Rangers is something where you can just focus on these characters. Maybe they're going to change the whole thing and make them very compelling characters. But already, they're already giving them superhuman strength and stuff, which they never had 
Although I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, you spoke on a previous podcast about misleading trailers. There's a potential that, um, you know, a la Fantastic Four. Um, <laughs> they're misleading in a positive way that they're yeah. holding the best stuff. I mean, this is what we're asking for, but I don't know about that. I'm too much of a cynic in this industry. Yeah, they I can't believe that. They don't they don't have my uh 1250 or whatever it's going to cost to see it uh yet, but I mean, we'll I don't see. pay for movies cuz I do the <laughs> reviews and stuff, but they maybe maybe I don't know. <laughs> I can't withhold anything from them. <laughs> it seems like the, you know, uh the fan film director I'm blanking on his name, uh, oh, Adi Shaknar, uh took what could be, a, you know, a more interesting approach to the property, pr- not something that Saban wanted obviously but at the same time he's making the argument that uh you know it's potentially transformative he's actually commenting on the brand uh circling you know back to to what we discussed with fair use it's a hard argument to make and probably not one that he uh has or will win but I guess for some fan films if you do it right and you're actually legitimately parodying the brand uh, you may have some protection the movie he made is similar to what Marvel does on Netflix that for its more adult audience Mm -hmm. we could keep it up there yeah and I mean I, I guess that's fine you know if you if you wanted to take Power Rangers in that direction that's I guess the avenue you would have to go because I, I would never see... Yeah, the answer there is get a license and do it above board the way that, you know, Marvel is doing with licensing their properties to Netflix. Yeah. Well, yeah, basically, so what, Netflix... How does that work? Netflix it's, is actually in control of... The it's a co-production media. between, I think, ABC Studios, which is also Disney-owned, mm-hmm. uh, and how Marvel puts out all their television products. You have the, you know, the lighter fare, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and Agent Carter... I don't know if that's still going. I think that got canceled. Now, um, yeah. That's on like ABC regular. That's a little bit lighter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the heavier stuff, as you mentioned, uh, goes to Netflix, but it's still through ABC and I believe co-produced with Netflix. But, you know, that's still a license from Marvel. This is interesting. Netflix press and Marvel press do not like each other. Because I always give this example from Comic-Con. Now, I didn't go this year to Comic-Con. Yeah, I missed it too. past two years, I won back-to-back uh, Netflix autograph signing, first with Daredevil. And then with Jessica Jones, I remember with the Jessica Jones one, the Netflix guys were trying to get some press for like their site or whatever. Marvel kept kicking them off the stage. That's interesting. They do not get along sometimes. (laughs) This is just an anecdote. We don't know if this is like real reality or whatever. It's just something I noticed that I just commenting count on. But um, well, we do know that even within Marvel, there's some you know some tension between Marvel TV and Marvel Film. Yes, that's Um, why. What's that called? Inhumans is not yeah. is getting shelled. Yeah, that's off the slate. So, um, I mean, oh God. <laughs> you know, like, who really cares at the end of the day? Those like five people that are actually watching S.H.I.E.L.D. And I can't <laughs> believe they have to waste Ghost Rider there. That's just... Uh, There's uh, There are rumors going that that's where Blade is headed too. Uh, to um, S.H.I.E.L.D.? Uh, yeah. Oh, why wouldn't you put them on Netflix? <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, that's another example. Marvel is doing... Uh, a really good job of leveraging every character that they have in their stable in some way, which means they're going to be even more protective over uh, a fan using any character, no matter how obscure, if it's if it's potentially um, competitive to them. You know, they want to encourage fans to interact with the brands that they love, and it certainly helps them in the long run. I'm sure it gets more people to go see or or, or watch these things on Netflix. 
but that doesn't mean they want to write off any obscure character. And say, I mean, a couple of years ago, you could have easily said, oh, they're never going to do anything with Guardians of the Galaxy. We should just let fans do whatever they want with that. But then, you know, now they're a top brand. So these companies have to be really wary of what their fans are doing and, um, you know, take it on a case by case. Well, that was the craziest thing that uh, some news station was saying that some crazy analyst was trying to say Disney overpaid for Marvel. And I know for a fact that's not true just because of the biggest thing with that deal was all the characters they got. Yeah. So it's like even though, yeah, sure, at the time, right, Spider-Man, Hulk, uh, X-Men, and I wouldn't even say the Avengers were popular then. Iron Man and Captain America weren't even popular, right? No, Iron Man was, I mean, you kind of universally considered quote-unquote B-level uh, before so Downey Spider- Jr. So stepped in. So was Spider-Man, Hulk, and X-Men? Yes, I mean, Spider-Man that? is still, like, their, the crown jewel. Yeah, of um, course. But, like, those are the three main popular ones that I guess Marvel had. Yeah. You know, I guess, see, with Fantastic Four, I say Doctor Doom controls his own, you know, he has his essence out there, but Fantastic Four, I don't think, really cut the, like, public, you know, exposure. Or no. Whatever. It's always like, oh, well, who are these guys and stuff like that. So, sure, if you go off that basis, then it looks like a bad deal because you didn't get the film rights and all this stuff. But really, it's all the different characters that they now control in every way. And that's why I always thought it was such a big steal. Um, but it's interesting what you were talking about with the Marvel going after fan films. This same director that made the Power Rangers also made one based on Eddie Brock with Venom. And now that one, I've heard the title of it, but that one definitely wasn't really competition. Mm-hmm. It was more like you see Venom here and there. There's no action scenes. It's just coming up as like a possible story, you know, to the side of the character or something like that. That one I could definitely see they're okay with. They're like, oh, whatever. We would never make anything like that anyway. It would only be something we maybe would put on as an extra at the end of a film. But... The Punisher, I think it was called Dirty, Dirty Laundry. Dirty Laundry, yeah. Using the same character, right? What was his name? Uh, Frank Castle. Yes. No, oh, the, the same uh, actor, actor uh, Tom Jane. Tom Jane, yeah, yeah. From the Punisher film. It's just as good. It's like a mini action scene from the Punisher. It could be better than anything that was in the film, possibly. <laughs> and if that was a bad film. John Travolta, oh, man. Yeah. But the current Punisher on Netflix, John Barenthal actually said that was one of his inspirations for the role that he watched that and it's just shocking that it's true marvel never went after that it's still available you can still watch it so it's really interesting how these different companies take these different approaches and it could just be saban is so out of touch with the power rangers that he just he like i remember the initial reaction everybody was positive it was like a resurgence of that oh yeah brand Coming in right away. It reinserted the brand into the public discourse in a way that it hadn't been in years. I mean, maybe he was worried about children's liability there. So what do you think are like the takeaways after looking at all these different examples of fan films that we can try and give our listeners? I think uh, really it's that, um, you know, unfortunately for some of the fans... You know, the copyright owners are definitely within their rights to be enforcing and protecting the properties that they own. Um, and 
even though it's sort of a tough call with the mix of legal and business decisions where uh, sometimes they're suing for infringement and other times they are letting projects pass, the right approach might be both for the companies to follow CBS and Paramount's and Lucasfilm's lead by issuing sort of clear guidelines on what they will allow, but making them a little more uh, fan-friendly than they are or maybe leave some room for negotiation for fans to actually have some discourse with the copyright owners about what they can do. And on the fan side, you know, when the guidelines are out there, follow them. <laughs> yes. I mean, I think it's a good approach for all these different studios and like, you know, content owners, copyright holders to make these guidelines. But it, it could be very problematic that I could see some companies not wanting to do it because then you're basically approving certain things, but you don't know how people could use it in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Is this is this going to be treated like an SEC no action order that you have to do exactly what they say? Maybe. And that that's totally fair if that's how you're making these guidelines. But it's also weird because it's kind of like not tacitly approved in the law and they're just making their own things up as they go along. I think overall it's definitely good to have some guidance because you don't want to have a chilling effect on this content that the fans love. Fans think it's just as good, but sure, the copyright holder is going to lose some money at the end of the day. I don't think it's anything significant. I really don't think it's going to have a um, negative effect on, let's say, the box office, let's say with Star Trek. I don't think the reason why Beyond didn't do as well as it thought it could is because of the fan film. Probably not. If no. anything, it's because of the le- lawsuit, mm-hmm. not the fan film. Yeah, I uh, I think I'd agree with that. And we're probably going to see uh, more and more fan films in the future, whether or not there are guidelines. So it probably makes the most sense for the copyright holders to try and get out ahead of it and figure out a structure uh, to regulate it as much as they can rather than, you know... Uh, ex post trying to figure out what to do yes all right thank you for being with me uh this week you got anything to plug uh no i do not uh <laughs> we didn't come up with a nickname either you got any nicknames uh no um but uh i was t- thanks for having me i was happy to be here we'll come up with a nickname i guess uh hopefully next time i'd love to come on again and and uh talk some more so i mean yeah i, I guess so this will be going up the week after we put up the symposium putting up the whole entire symposium is going to be a great time hope all of you if you didn't listen to it go back and listen to them they were great panels copyright viral videos we also talked about licensing and antitrust provisions uh there's very big things happening on iplj don't worry i know the specific podcast episode about my note about the unauthorized use of legal trademarks in films it's gonna be a doozy we may do a two-parter i'm not sure whoa it's like you know you gotta gotta respect the colonel that runs the online journal. <laughs> you 